you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, the first chapter, we've been preaching for a number of weeks on the four activities of the church of God when it was first founded. We found those activities listed in the book of Acts, second chapter, immediately following the first sermon in the New Testament age, after the Lord had gone back to heaven. And it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine and prayers and in breaking of bread and fellowship. We want to consider this morning the doctrine. We talked a few weeks about the fellowship and how the church at Ephesus had lost sight of that and how to deal with that. They hadn't lost sight of the doctrine. And so we want to look this morning the truth or the doctrine that was believed and lived out in Ephesus. And I thought a good title for this sermon would be the Lost Truth series because we mentioned last week a big what if. What if every single Baptist church that has a root to these truths, to their articles of faith, that are still on many of those churches, it's still on their books. What if those churches went back to these truths and focused on the truths as much as they have focused through the years on activities and programs? Think about that. It would be revival like you have never seen. It would be another great awakening. I assure you, it would be another great awakening as we have seen occurred here in America in centuries past. And people say, well, I don't know if that's going to work or not. Well, just try it. (laughs) So as we consider that this morning, beginning in verse 3, as we consider these lost truths of the Word of God, the first truth, the first point of doctrine that the Apostle Paul lists there when he speaks of our blessings, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. The first thing he lists is we are chosen in Christ. Listen to the language. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. When you read the word chosen and you find words that are associated with this point of doctrine, you're going to find words like foreknown and you're going to find the term elect or election. Those words are synonymous with one another. They have to do with the same thing. When it says God has chosen us, that means to pick out or to select or to elect. It means to foreknow. In Romans the 8th chapter, the 29th verse, is those five glorious things are listed there that that are working together for your good and for my good, for the children of God. It says whom He did foreknow. You see... He also did predestinate, foreknow, elect, chosen. Those are all synonymous terms that have to do with the same point of truth. And notice Paul says that you are blessed. And the first blessing that he lists there is that we are chosen in Christ. As many of you, like me, have been on the playground before when you were in elementary school. And maybe you were a scraggly little kid like I was. And not as fast as some of the other kids. Not as big as some of the other kids. And... They'd line up across there and choose to play, you know, Red Rover or dodgeball or kickball or a little tag football or something. And I used to just break out in a cold sweat when the teacher would say, it's okay, everybody line up and so-and-so choose. I always wanted to be the one that was choosing. I didn't want to be one of the ones that was being chosen because I knew inevitably at that age, and don't feel sorry for me, I got taller, got a little, little bit stronger, a little bit faster. But at that age, I was usually one of the last two or three. And I remember thinking, you know, there was a couple of kids that were that were just not athletic at all. And I was thinking, well, at least I won't be chosen <laughs> after him. Somebody will get me before they get him. That's terrible, isn't it? That's just kids. So I dreaded the moment of choosing on the playground. 
because I knew I wasn't going to be. I wanted to be the top pick. Well, listen to me. It's not like that with God. You are the top pick of God. That's amazing, isn't it? You know why you're the top pick of God? It's because Jesus is the top pick of God. You are in Christ, in the top pick. (laughs) Notice Paul says, the first blessing is according or the manner in which you are blessed. The reason you are blessed is because God has chosen you. It says, God hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I admit to you that a lot of times, and I heard preaching on election and predestination growing up, and you think about before the foundation of the world, sometimes that can kind of be hard to touch. It's kind of hard for it to be tangible. You think, I wasn't there. I've never seen before the foundation of the world. So we don't want to lose the importance of how this applies to you as the pick of God, as the chosen of God in Christ. We don't want to lose the effect of that just because it was a long time ago. The word chosen means to select or to pick out, to make a choice. And the question immediately arises. It's natural for us to think, why? You know, why did God have to choose? Well, first of all, we can't deny that the term chosen, elect, foreknown, so forth. We can't deny that's in the word of God. And we also can't deny that Jesus used it on a frequent basis. As a matter of fact, this term occurs about 19 times in the New Testament. But specifically, let me give you a couple places. In Mark 13 and 20, when Jesus is referring to the end times, he speaks of the elect whom he hath chosen. This is not a term that was something foreign or ugly term to Jesus. This is something that was very well known. It was just applied in a different way in the days of Christ. It was primarily applied to the nation, the chosen nation of Israel. Well, that all changed whenever Christ came and ushered in the New Testament age. Now, child of grace, you are the chosen nation of Israel. You see, there's no more Jew and Greek, but we are spiritual Jews. And see, that's, that's what Jesus, that was kept secret from the foundation of the world. He says that in 1 Corinthians. That's what he's come to reveal in the gospel. That it's not just a chosen nation. But it is a chosen people out of every race, nation, kindred, and tongue. Jesus said this. Now listen to this. In the most important task that he had to carry out whenever he was here on the earth, the choosing of his apostles. That's a pretty important task. You know, the Lord has it in his mind. I'm going to have certain men be my apostles and follow me. Did he put it out to lottery or did he take applications? He did not. God's not going to leave anything important like that open-ended. It says in John 15 and 16, this is primarily applicable to the apostles, but child of grace, it also applies to us as his chosen people of God. He said, ye have not chosen me. John 15 and 16. (laughs) That's pretty plain, isn't it? He's looking at the apostles and it's like he's saying, which one of you came and made application to work for me as an apostle? To be called as an apostle? None of them. Think about it. Picture in your mind the times that he calls the apostles. You know, he sees Matthew sitting at custom. He says, follow me. He sees Peter and James and John washing their nets. Follow me. He calls them. You see, he chose them to follow him. He says, you have not chosen me. That's as plain as it could be. It would take some theological somersaults to get over that, would it not? (laughs) You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. See? And when you see why he has to do that, you won't have any problem with it. John 5 and 39, Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. What's the subject? It's eternal life. 
Jesus said, search the word of God. Those people he was talking to thought that the key to their eternal life was somehow found in the Word of God and in the keeping of the law. That was the scriptures that were written down at that time that he's referring to. New Testament hadn't been written down yet. Gospels hadn't been written down yet. He says, search the Old Testament. Search the Pentateuch. Search the law of Moses. Search the scriptures because you think that's the key in keeping those laws and commands. You think that's the key to eternal life. And he says, they are they. The scriptures are what testifies of me. So when you go to the word of God, you're not looking for a way to get to heaven. You're not looking for a to-do list to get to heaven. The Ten Commandments are not a to-do list to get to heaven. You're looking for Christ because he is the key on how we arrive in heaven. And then he goes on and he says, and ye will not come to me that you might have life. That's amazing, isn't it? The words of Christ could not be plainer. You will not come to Christ for life. What's the subject? It's not natural life. It's eternal life. How could the words be any plainer? He says, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you. And ye will not come to me that you might have life. Now, being chosen is not just something that is thrown around in the New Testament. As I said, in the Old Testament, you find where God chose the nation of Israel. Now, think about that for just a minute. Ham, Shem, and Japheth are the descendants of Noah. And those are some pretty amazing guys. Basically, you've got three categories of people. By the way, even DNA technology proves that there's basically three ethnicities. Okay? You see three ethnicities. You know, you've got Ham, who went south into Africa. You've got Shem, who kind of stayed in the general area of the Middle East. And also, some of his descendants went towards China. And then you also have Japheth who went up north into Europe. Okay, that's basically the three. And look, I've told you all this before, I think, but an uncle of mine wanted me to take a DNA test a few years ago just for McCool genealogy. And I did it and we found some relatives and so forth. Well, he and I were discussing this. He said, you know, the DNA folks have basically narrowed it down to four ancestors. And I was like, well, who are they? He was like, well, there's the European, there's the African You know, there's the Middle Eastern or Asian. And then there's the South American Indian. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, if we could just figure out where that South American Indian came from, we've got Ham, Sham, and (laughs) JPEG. Can it be that simple? Yes, it is that simple. We come from Ham, Sham, and JPEG. This is an easy explanation for the South American Indian if you'd like to hear it. Stay tuned. I'll share that with you after the service. (laughs) You have to follow the Word of God, though, to get that explanation. You have to believe what the Bible says. So think about Ham, Sham, and JPEG. Of the three... I would say Shem was probably the least exciting. <laughs> you know, Japheth goes off up north and begins to found nations and countries and cities and city-states and so forth up north towards Europe and the area of Turkey today and on north and Greece. That's where the, the Greeks come from, the Romans came from. You think about that great history there. And then you think about Ham. Ham goes south and he's down in Africa. And then you, know, you think about, have you ever heard of the Zulu nation? Oh, good grief. Amazing African power that existed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Read about them. It's incredible. The military that they had. And there's Shem. (laughs) Of all those three, who would have picked somebody out of Shem? And furthermore, who would have picked a man who had a barren wife? Abraham, Sarah. You see, that's how God works. So you want to know where the nation of Israel comes from. It's because God chose Abraham. So that's not fair. I wish he'd have chosen a Japhethite. Well, I wish he'd have chosen a Hamite. You have to take that up with God. But God doesn't do any wrong. He never thinks anything wrong or does anything wrong. So choosing Abraham and choosing Sarah, it had to be right. And so 
the descendant of Abraham that comes is a fellow named Jacob, and God changes his name to Israel. There you have the nation of Israel. It came from some very obscure beginnings. Who's the father of our nation? We think of George Washington, right? I've been to Mount Vernon. It's incredible. It's it's amazing. I sit there and try to picture what it was like living back in those times. All the history that's amazing. Check it out. It's incredible. And then you say to an Israelite, I say to you as a spiritual Israelite, where did you come from? (laughs) Well, I came from a 70-something-year-old man and a barren woman. (laughs) That's not very exciting, is it? But it's miraculous and it's glorifying to God. So the nation of Israel, the chosen nation, comes from this unlikely source. That's how God works. He brings to pass things that are not as though that they are. And in Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, you read where the Lord says of the nation of Israel. This is after the law has been given, you know, after they come out of Egypt or they're coming out of Egypt. uh, Deuteronomy is the repeat of the law. Now listen to Deuteronomy 7 and let's look at verse 6. He says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Oh, well, let's take offense and file a lawsuit. Go hire the ACLU. Because it's just not fair that God would choose and say, what, What's so much more special about them? Well, I'm going to tell you what. In nature... From a natural standpoint, nothing is more special about the nation of Israel right here as he says this. You know why they're special? It's because God said they're special. You know, you can take a run-down shack out in the woods and that rickety old shack that's about to fall down and compare it to the Taj Mahal. And if God chooses to walk and put His glorious holy feet in that run-down shack, that place is more glorious than the Taj Mahal. Why? Because God is there. You see, so if God says these people are special to me, we should say, praise God. And today, child of grace, I say to you as a chosen child of God, chosen in Christ, in the top pick of God, which was the son of God, you are special to God. (laughs) You're a special people. So let's act like it. Let's act like special people. It's great to feel special, is it not? (laughs) Oh, I tell you what, as a husband, (laughs) it brings wonderful feelings when we make each other feel special, right? (laughs) That's a great thing. God wants you to feel the fact that you are special to Him. That's why He told these Israelites. He says, you're a special people to me upon the face of the earth. Now, God also referred to the nation of Israel as His elect or chosen nation. In Isaiah 41, verse 8 and 9, He says, Israel, mine elect, my chosen nation. Interestingly, and don't ever forget this, in Isaiah 42 and 1, the Lord refers to His own Son as the top pick, as the elect of God. He says, Behold mine elect, in whom I am well pleased. This is a great term. This is good. Jesus is special to God. I mean, He is God, of course, but He was the chosen one of God to go and pay for the sins of His people. Psalm 65 and 4 says, Blessed is the man whom God chooseth. You are chosen this morning, child of grace. You are blessed. You are special. I don't care what circumstances of life come upon you. I don't care what bad decisions you make. We all make bad decisions. I don't care how bad things get. Don't ever forget that as a child of grace, you are special to God and you are chosen in Christ. You may look at the things you do and think, well, I just don't feel very special. If the last thing on the earth that you have to feel special about is the fact that the special Son of God has paid for your sins, that's enough. That's enough to repent of any sin. It's enough to turn from any bad path that a person has chosen. Thinking that the Son of God chose me. And the Son of God is special. You see? When did this happen? Well, 
He says there in the book of Ephesians that it happened before the foundation of the world. (laughs) I try to visualize that. It's kind of hard to. And When I think of foundations being laid, I think of a house being built, a, a church like this being built. And I think of almost 20 years ago when we laid the foundation of our house. When we had the contractor come out and he began to dig a basement and pour footings and and do the concrete blocks and all that type of stuff. You know, we would go out there and we'd check on it on a regular basis right there on the farm. We're living right there in the old farmhouse. And we'd watch the progress. And when we laid the foundations of our house that we were going to, Lord willing, live in, I knew there were going to be at least five people living there. It was me and Sister Tracy and... Sister Madison and Sister Abigail and Brother Asher. I don't even think he was here yet when the foundation were laid. I don't think he had been born yet. But we didn't know his name yet. We didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, but we knew some fifth person would be living in that house. You know, we had an idea of who was going to be living in that house. That's what election is. Now, I didn't know that two more were going to be coming along sometime later to live there. Sister Elizabeth, Sister Lila. But you understand, I had an idea. You know, I built rooms. You know, we said we need this many bedrooms. We need this many bathrooms. We need this den, this foyer. We need this basement. We need this. We need that. God is way beyond us. And he's sovereign. And his thoughts are above our thoughts. He knows who's going to live with him. He knows how many mansions to build. He knows what to do in heaven so that it will house the children of God. He has to or he's not God. Before the foundation of the world, I heard it was a Sonny Pyle sermon, Brother Luke. You may have heard it. Years ago, Brother Sonny was preaching, telling a story about an evangelist that was known in the early 1900s. And they'd gone to some meeting over in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was one of those theological type meetings, you know, kind of put you to sleep. <laughs> Told his buddy, he said, let's get out of here. <laughs> so they got out of there and they went down the street in Atlanta. And there was an African-American church down there. And they were having a big revival. And I mean, there were just windows were open. People were singing. You could hear them. And so they went and they hung inside the window. These two white men, you know, they just kind of hung over inside of the window. Of course, they stood out a little bit. They were the only two white men at this meeting. And they were in there just having a good time, just worshiping the Lord. And so the African-American preacher got up there and he began to preach in his way. You know, he was he looked at the choir and he said, choir, where was the Lord before the foundation of the world? And the choir said, well, we don't know. And the African-American preacher looked at the congregation. And he said, well, where was the Lord congregation before the foundation of the world? And the congregation said, well, we don't know. He looked over at the two white preachers hanging in the window and he said, Mr. White Man, where was the Lord before the foundation of the world? And they said, we don't know. He said, I'll tell you where he was. He was in his glory before the foundation of the world. That's where the Lord was. And you know where the Lord is now? He's in his glory. A child of grace, as glorious as you may think things of this world are, as glorious as you may enjoy anything that's in this world, as glorious as what we enjoyed yesterday in that ceremony of celebrating the covenant and the marriage of two young people, as glorious as that was, I tell you, we've not seen the glory of God in the sense of God living in His glory for eternity and the sense of the glory of God surrounding this limited line of time that we live in and the small little speck of time that's on the line of time which represents your life. I tell you, we haven't seen what the glory of God is. And Jesus said, whenever He spoke of those that He prayed for that were in the world but not of the world, He said, I pray not for the world, but I pray for those that Thou hast given Me out of the world. That's the chosen. That's the elect. And He kept off that beautiful prayer there in the gospel of John by saying, I would, I wish, I desire that they will be with me and you, Lord, where you are in our glory. That's your destination. It's glory. We can have some good times in this life and I've had some good times and I anticipate to have more good times and rejoice in the Lord, but nothing can compare to the glory that God has for his people. And before the foundation of the world, in his perfect glory, the Lord chose you. 
And He will have you with Him in His glory. Why? Because Christ came and paid for your sins. And His resurrection is proof of the glory that will be revealed in you at the end of time. Walk in that glory. Feel that specialness. You say, well, I go to school and I don't feel very special. You know, I'm like you, Brother Tim. I'm looked over on the playground. I'm picked last. I tell you, if the grace of God is in your heart, you are special. It doesn't matter if you get picked last for the rest of your life. (laughs) You're special. God in His glory, before the foundation of the world, chose a people and wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. Not one will be added, praise God, and not one will be taken away. The sum certain of God's people which cannot be numbered by man. Don't ever forget that. It's as the stars of the sky, as the sands of the sea. It cannot be numbered by man. Who else is preaching this? Who else is giving this kind of message and saying that it's not based on what you do. It is not based on how you come to Him or how you choose Him. It's based on the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost before the foundation of the world and wrote the names of His children and He will have them there. Now that's glorious. Because if you make it any other condition, if you put it on man, somebody's going to be left out. Oh, it's a sad tale to go around telling, you've got to accept. We've got to get to this country and save these people because they're going to die and go to hell. Or we've got to get to this person or they're not going to make it. Listen, that's a sad tale to tell on God because God says, I know those people that are mine in that country already because He says, I've got a people out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. I've got a people behind the wall of China. I've got a people behind the Iron Curtain when it was in existence there in Russia. I've got a people that are in South America. I've got a people in North America. I've got a people among the indigenous tribes of the American continent. I've got a people in every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and nation. I know them. I will get them to heaven. That's glorious. Who else is preaching that message? I tell you, that's a message of relief for the child of God. 2 Timothy 1 and 9, God who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the world began. Before the world began, the purpose and grace of God was given to us in Christ Jesus and He would come one day and He would sacrifice Himself. 1 Peter 1 and 2, Peter opens up the the letter there in 1 Peter and he says, elect according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. He goes on in verse 20 and he says, the Lamb of God who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Romans the ninth chapter, the 10th verse, he speaks of election, he speaks of the choosing. And he says, not only this, But when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, not of any good or any evil that the children might have done, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. You see, it was God's sovereign right to choose whom he will. Now don't feel sorry for Esau. And don't feel sorry for those that are not chosen. Because God's not doing them any harm. He's just leaving them where they are. People say, I can't believe he would hate Esau. I can't believe he'd love Jacob. Jacob's described as a worm. Jacob was a wormy guy. He was kind of a shyster. He was one that would double cross you. I can't believe he'd love Jacob. And for that matter, child of grace, I can't believe he'd love Tim. (laughs) If you know yourself and you see what you are and you see that you come from Adam, our forefather, you will say, I can't believe he choose me. You see, that's the glory of God's choosing. He didn't have to choose anybody. He said, wait a minute, I'm a pretty good person. I do some good things. If you do anything good, 
And it's the spiritual good. It's only because God has made you good. Because remember, you will not come to me that you'll have life. You won't do it. So what is the purpose of all of this? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Listen to me as we close. Yes, we need to be holy now. (laughs) And we need to live a blameless life now. Because we stand before Him now. And we stand before Him in love. But child of grace, there's coming a day when that will actually happen. When the foundations of the world have been put away. We'll go into an existence that is beyond the foundation of the world. That was there before the world was founded. And will be there after the world has been folded up like a vesture and put up on a shelf. And the Lord is through with it. And we will be holy and without blame before Him in love. Oh child of grace, listen, Isaiah 49 and 16. Just read this last week and it hit me like a ton of bricks. He says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. I've always kind of thought that that read, Behold, I've graven your name upon the palms of my hand. It doesn't say that. It says, Behold, I have graven thee. You are engraven upon the palms of his hands. Not your name. You hear me? You ever been to Washington, D.C. maybe and gone to see the Vietnam Memorial? It's astounding. I've gone there and just looked in awe several times in my life and just felt so small. And the names that are engraven on that wall. But you know what? Bless those men's heart that gave their lives for our country. They are not engraven on the wall. It's their names. Are you with me? You can go and you can see there's my loved one or there's someone I knew. Their names are engraven on the wall. Somebody took something and hammered their name into the wall. Child of grace, let me tell you, you are special to God. And He doesn't just have your name engraved upon His hands. He has you engraved upon His hands. You are imprinted upon Him. You are impressed upon Him. It is you, child of God. So when He looks upon His hands, He doesn't just see your name. He sees you. That's special. I tell you, I like carrying around a picture of my wife. I like saying, here's my wife. Hey, I've been carrying around pictures of my grandson here lately. It's a new thing. I'm going to say, look at this. Like I'm the first person that's ever become a grandpa, you know. Look at this. Look at this picture. Wow, this is something. This is new. But I tell you what, as much as I like carrying a picture around of my wife, I'd much rather have her on my arm and say, here she is. This is her. You see, I'd rather have her presence. I'd rather have her. You see, Christ is not just satisfied with having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. He's not just satisfied in having having done that before the foundation of the world. No, he has you, yourself, your individual person engraven in the palms of his hands. He's got you. So no matter what you experience in life, no matter how far down you go, no matter how many bad decisions you make, he's got you and you're special. I'll tell you what, that makes me want to serve him. Isaiah 43 and 1 says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. You want to know why Mary Magdalene came to the Lord Jesus Christ? It's because the Lord came to her. You want to know why the Apostle Paul came to the Lord Jesus Christ? It's because the Lord came to Paul on the road to Damascus. What goodness did Paul have to offer to Christ at that point? He hated Christ. You want to know why the thief on the cross cried out, Lord, remember me. What goodness did he have to offer to the Lord? He was a criminal. And the Lord had come to him and touched him. You see, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I have called you by name. And I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. You remember that in your dark moments. You remember that in your difficult times. The Lord sees you, not just your name. 
And He loves you. And child of grace, there's no better place that you could be than in the church of God where the Lord looks. And in the Old Testament, He said, I have set my name upon the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, He says, I have set my name on my church and my bride, my wife. There's no better place than you could be than the church of God where the Lord looks upon you. Not just your name, but you.